Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 4th of August, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, I'm delighted to say Alex Thompson from Eastern Approaches. Welcome to the programme, Alex. Thank you, Mike. Good to have you here physically. And uh, joining us over the video link is uh, Brian Gerrish, as usual. So uh, we're just going to get straight on uh, with the uh, vaccination of children. Uh, just Let's just set the scene. If we remember June Rain, the chief executive of the uh, MHRA, the medicines regulator in the UK, uh, some weeks ago said it will now be for the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation to advise on whether children will be vaccinated as part of the deployment programme. Um, and if you remember, uh, at the time that she made this statement or a couple of days later, the JCVI put a, out a statement which said, following a request from the Department of Health and Social Care for advice on a positive, possible extension of the COVID-19 vaccination programme, the JCVI has looked at the available evidence around vaccinating children and young people under the age of 18 from today, that was a few, couple of weeks ago, the JCVI is advising that children at increased risk of serious COVID-19 disease are offered the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine. Uh, that includes children aged 12 to 15 with severe neurodisabilities, Down syndrome, immunosuppression, and multiple or severe learning disabilities. The JCVI is not currently advising routine vaccination of children outside of these groups based on the current evidence. So that was their position a couple of weeks ago. They went on to say, of course, that as evidence shows that COVID-19 rarely causes severe disease in children without underlying health conditions. At this time, the JCVI's view is that the minimal health benefits of offering universal COVID-19 vaccination to children do not outweigh the potential risks. Almost all children and young people are at very low risk from COVID-19 symptoms when seen, are typically mild and fewer than 30 children have died because of COVID-19 in the UK as of March. 2021. Uh, the uh, deputy chair of the JCVI said at the time, the primary aim of the vaccination program has always been to prevent hospitalizations and deaths based on the fact that previously well children, if they do get COVID-19, are likely to have a very mild form of the disease. The health benefits of vaccinating them are small. Uh, and uh, But to, as of today, uh, the update to that is except if they are 16 or 17. Now, of course, that's not a direct quote, but that is uh, the position. So the JCVI uh, has apparently done a U-turn and uh, they are going to now advise uh, 16 and 17 year olds are given uh, the opportunity the opportunity uh, to be vaccinated. Um, so that would be, uh, uh, well, at this point in time, 223,755 under 18s have received a first vaccine dose. Um, and uh, But I think it's something about 1.4 million teenagers are now going to be offered this. Um, so uh, Michelle Donnellan, who is uh, a government representative, apparently, uh, because she said, as a representative of the government, I'm waiting for the JCV update, JCVI update. I'm not going to preempt a policy announcement. What was that in response to? That was in response to a question from a Sky News presenter this morning asking, are parents going to be consulted uh, on this, uh, on whether 16, 17 year olds uh, will be given the vaccination or not? Or are the 17... 16, 17 year olds just going to get a text message saying, come and get yours today. So, Brian, uh, just uh, briefly, uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think of this? Uh, well, I, th I think we're into the uh, normal routine of mixed messages. So on one hand, you're saying that uh, uh, the children are not at risk or if, they, if they're going to get a problem, it's going to be very low. Um, we're then heading towards vaccinating children who've already got problems. 
and there is absolutely no talk about the risks of adverse effects. So uh, we were doing this with adults, but now it's even worse because we want to vaccinate children and we don't want to give their parents at least the right of an informed choice by telling them what the risks are, uh, even via the limited data that's been collected by the MHRA via its yellow card scheme. Uh, yeah, well, of course, uh, that is all correct, but uh, um, they uh, are, well, I can't remember what I was going to say there. So look, we'll, we'll move on. Right. Uh, Alex. Just, just before we move on, yes. it's a committee, isn't it? It's a joint committee. That's um, right, yes. Yeah, vaccination and immunisation. I only became aware of it watching old material from Dr. Graham Downham, Downing at uh, Alternative View, where he said about three years ago, if you don't know who the JCVI are, they're the people who decide what uh, jabs your kids get. Yes. Um, and that now we've got the government saying that they're waiting for advice from this committee. And what the government issues itself will only be advice. Who, who advises the advisors of the advisors? Uh, well, this is a very good question, but of course, this is all about uh, not taking any responsibility for decisions yourself. Seems to be. But then the question is, what's the situation in Europe, uh, Alex? Uh, and here we have a tweet um, from Zed Never. What is that, Zed Never? Never, yes. Yes, uh, German newspaper Bild apologizes for pushing COVID lockdown hysteria and harming society. Now, there's a bit of video with this, which we will uh, play with some uh, subtitles there. But what's the, what's the upshot of what they're saying? Uh, Bild Zeitung is the German equivalent of the sun, and it even looks similar. It, for decades, has been the uh, big red top tabloid that the uh, German politicians have been worried about. And uh, here we see the editor-in-chief apologizing directly for children. By the way, we'll find out in a moment that, uh, that there's been a bit of a delay in this reaching the English-speaking world. But this tweet and others of, of this week, the beginning of August 2021, have uh, hit the English-speaking world. He is saying directly to children on behalf of by far the most popular uh, newspaper in the German-speaking world, uh, we have failed you children because we have not questioned the federal government and its claims that you are going to kill granny and we have not questioned why you were sent home and masked up and uh, had your football fields locked down. This is um, a, a two-minute précis with English and French subtitles of what was originally an over-five-minute apology. It's pretty unprecedented for Germany. It's taken the whole summer to trickle through to the English-speaking world. But uh, it, it's, I, I find my word, myself using this term very often, but it is unprecedented that Bild Zeitung has done this. Uh, they, for decades, were the go-getters, like the Murdoch press in Britain. Uh, whatever the enemy of the of, uh, government was in the day, they would go and demonise them. And Bild Zeitung has turned tables. Uh, I haven't seen much back in the German media over the summer about this. Uh, but uh, there we are. He's saying that those who wish to co contradict the propaganda were never invited to the expert table. Our policies, he said, would have been better opening schools and sports halls rather than polling stations. Otherwise, they, the government, will have on their conscience and will leave in the history books a multitude of innocent souls. And uh, he's even talking about spiritual and, 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 and mental isolation, uh, seelische uh, Einsamkeit as one of the things that, uh, that uh, the, gov the government forced upon children. So here at the time, if you click again, you will see that it's actually the 20 um, uh, something of May, isn't it? Yes, the 27th of May that Julian Reichelt, editor in chief, uh, put this out. And the, the headline is simply, Built craves the uh, forgiveness of all children. Uh, so we haven't seen anything like this in Britain, have we, or any, any other English-speaking country? I think it's highly unlikely we will, uh, bearing in mind the state of the British press at the moment, but uh, yeah, quite unprecedented. Um, okay, uh, let's move on to the, the pandemic, because of course we've got a, a new piece of news, uh, thanks to Patrick for this 
particular graphic, um, because what is the government saying? Uh, they're saying now that fewer contacts will be notified by the NHS app following an update to the, quote, logic. Uh, the public has been urged to continue using the NHS COVID-19 app as restrictions continue to lift. So clearly the government very unhappy about what has happened over the last couple of weeks in the sense that uh, while it's been highly successful at making sure that uh, as much continued disruption to the economy has taken place as possible, uh, in the meantime, more and more people have been removing the NHS app from their phones. And this is a sort of belated attempt uh, to encourage people to not do that. Um, so what they're saying is that new data shows that over 50,000 cases were averted in the first three weeks of July, with up to 2,000 cases prevented in a single day or e each day. That's their claim, 50,000 cases averted because of the pandemic. Uh, the public is being urged, they said, to continue uh, to use the app as changes made from uh, Monday this week uh, will result in fewer contacts being advised to self-isolate. So what is the change? Well, it was the case that uh, up until Monday this week, if you had been in a close contact of somebody who had tested positive, uh, if you had been in close, contact them, in close contact with them within the five days prior to the positive test, that would uh, cause your phone to ping you. Uh, they have reduced that to two days. Um, and uh, this, they hope, is going to be a better balance in terms of the number of people pinged uh, and the uh, encouragement to, to, for people to continue using the app. But the question is, where did they, what is the source of this claim of 50,000 cases averted uh, in the first three weeks of July with 2,000 cases prevented in a day? Uh, well, it's this. Um, this is uh, from Oxford University. It's entitled Evaluating Epidemiological Impacts of the NHS COVID-19 App and August 2021 update. Uh, and they have a, a very cool graph there, uh, which shows a correlation between the number of notifications and the number of positive tests. Uh, and they're claiming all kinds of things. But I think this is probably the key piece of text, the app. The app, that's the NHS app, provides data on how many people use it in each postcode area, how many notifications are sent out to contacts of infected individuals, and how many of those later re register a positive test with the app. Combining these data with data from two surveys uh, of how well people adhere to quarantine, we can model how many infections were averted by the app. Uh -huh. So this claim by the government of 50,000 cases averted in the first five, three weeks of July with 2,000 cases prevented a day uh, is based on more modeling uh, and based on two surveys uh, along with some data gleaned from the app. So um, should we be relying on models at this stage, Alex? Um this is modelling a model of a model, isn't it? It's like who advises the advisors of the advisors. It's, it's getting beyond a joke. And, uh, and when I was on the, my uh, way over here, of course, one of the things I had to do for the sake of peace of mind and whatever uh, for my parents who are hosting me is go and get these silly PCR tests. Uh, I went into the Bedfordshire pharmacy where I was going to get swabbed. And uh, I, the first thing they ask is, you got the app open, dearie? And I said to the chap, I don't have a smartphone because I've just got this little basic brick instead now for uh, much more peace of mind for myself, uh, especially when traveling uh, and not having my data nicked. And um, the chap at the front desk, uh, when I told him I don't have a smartphone to preempt the question, have you got the app open? He looked in utter astonishment. You don't have a smartphone. How else are you going to get the results? There's no way you're going to get the results. I said, I have an email account. I have a printer. This hadn't occurred to him. So, yeah, 
app, I think Britain is really going overboard on, the, on smartphones and apps, uh, with the possible exception of Chile, where you've seen footage of 100-year-olds being told they can't do their groceries because they haven't booked in an app. Mm. Uh, we're heading that way, aren't we? Yeah, very rapidly. Uh, so let's look at uh, what Sajid, Sajid Javid had to say. We want to reduce the disruption that self-isolation can cause for people and businesses while ensuring we're protecting those most at risk from the virus. It's so important that people isolate when asked to do so in order to stop a spread of the virus and protect their communities. So there you go. Now let's just uh, quickly move on to, uh, to this. Uh, this uh, graphic actually comes from British Columbia. I'm just gonna comment on this, uh, Alex, because it's uh, priority vaccination for pregnant people. Uh, it's women aren't pregnant anymore. It's people that yeah, get pregnant. We've seen British media tweeting out uh, pregnant people last week uh, and actually getting really taken to task by their own readers on Twitter for it. Uh, and this is why I wanted to mention it, because my point here is that, of course, we, we're seeing these common narratives in countries right across the world. And so there's clearly some kind of centralized decision making going on about how. But this, is, this lady is, is cis pregnant. It's, it's not a pregnant person with a beard. That would be a trans pregnant person, wouldn't it? Uh, quite possibly. But anyway, uh, what are the they saying? Well, uh, they are launching today, uh, yesterday, I think it is now, a clinical trial investigating the best gap between first and second COVID-19 vaccine doses for pregnant women. Um, so this is following 130,000 pregnant women being vaccinated in the United States with no safety concerns being raised, is the claim from the British government. Uh, and so the Pfizer uh, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines are recommended by the independent experts at the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation for pregnant women in the UK. Uh, almost 52,000 pregnant women in the UK have now been vaccinated, similarly with no vaccine, with no safety concerns reported. So no safety concerns at all. Uh, let's see what uh, uh, Nadim Zahawi, otherwise known as Anton LaVey, had to say. Pregnant women are more likely to get seriously ill from COVID-19. And we know that vaccines are safe for them uh, and make a huge difference. Nadim is behind the curve. He's talking about women. Well, indeed. But anyway, nonetheless, uh, is he correct? Well, uh, I'm just going to remind everybody what David Scott presented a couple of weeks ago. Um, this uh, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, V-Safe COVID-19 Vaccine Pregnancy Registry. Uh, he was talking about this and... Uh, he was also talking about a report from which is entitled Preliminary Findings of mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Safety in Pregnant Persons. Um, so this is again the case. And another report, mRNA COVID-19 Vaccines in Pregnant Women uh, from the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, and uh, well, the key point that he was highlighting on this from this paper was among V-Safe Pregnancy Registry participants, 28.6% percent received vaccine in the first trimester, 43.3 percent in the second trimester, and 25.7 percent in the third trimester. Uh, and uh, he uh, was highlighting the person who ran this, but he did a sort of calculation. This is the point that I want to get to. How many spontaneous abortions would we expect to find in this study? Uh, and so 17.5 percent is what he said, times 80 percent times 26, 28.6 percent uh, times 827 participants equals 33 spontaneous abortions in the first trimester. This is, these numbers have come from the scientific paper. Uh, and then the second uh, tri trimester, the calculation is 17.5% times 20% uh, times uh, brackets 28.6% plus 43.3% uh, times 827, which equals 27 spontaneous abortions in the second trimester. trimester. Now the definition of a spontaneous abortion is a miscarriage. Um, so therefore, the total expected uh, in the trial 
and the, the, the study was 33 plus 21, which equals 54 spontaneous abortions expected. But the actual number of spontaneous abortions recorded in the trial was 115. 115 is 213% of the expected number, more than double. And uh, David's point was uh, that this absolutely shows that there are issues around pregnancy and vaccination with these particular uh, jabs. So um, is Nadeem Zahawi's complaint that, uh, uh, claim that this is safe? Is that Does that stack up? Well, this particular evidence suggests that it doesn't. Uh, and uh, there's much more work that needs to be done on this. And I believe much more work is going to be done on this, uh, not least by uh, Doctors for COVID Ethics in the next number of weeks. So um, this is an issue that needs to be continued. This, this particular work needs to be continued. There, there are issue. so many studies backed up in a queue that the good doctors of Doctors for COVID Ethics and other groups are trying to get out to the media and they're just about managing to connect with the right people now. Uh, what, whichever area of COVID we're talking about, there are studies backlogged that uh, question or demolish the official narrative. Uh, it's simply a narrow pipeline of getting them out to anyone who will publish. Uh, Brian, I think I know what you're going to say, but I mean, th th this is not incompetence on Nadeem Zahawi's part. This, <laughs> he knows what the situation is. He, he's just being uh, disingenuous, untruthful. Uh, well, this, this, is, this has been the government uh, uh, policy all along. The government's no longer tells the, the wider public the truth about what's going on. They're not giving the public the true statistics. There is no proper risk analysis. Uh, we are simply being fed a line, which is always pro-vaccine. And although we have not seen the evidence to prove that the vaccines are safe with these groups, whether it's children or, or pregnant women, in fact, the opposite applies, that if we look at the government's own statistics through the MHRA, which says it's got the job of protecting uh, the public and keeping them safe from, from medicines and drugs and vaccines that don't work, uh, we find that their own statistics raise huge questions and concerns about safety. What does the government do? It ignores all this information and just carries on uh, with the, the vaccine program. They do not care who they harm or maim. Uh, we still know that there are people in hospital paralyzed from the neck down as a result of these vaccines. Uh, we simply don't talk about these problems. We just move on to let's get more jabs in people's arms. And just to reassure people on this phrase jab, we're pretty confident that the reason they use jab is that they know these are not vaccines. It's experimental gene therapy. So the government lies, it distorts data, it deceives the public. This is a government which is attacking its own population. Um, okay, well, let's uh, come back to the BBC then. And uh, a lovely little propaganda piece uh, entitled uh, COVID cases and hospital admissions down, is it over? Um, and they begin by saying what the government in England announced, uh, sorry, when the government in England announced it was lifting nearly all remaining restrictions, it was branded a dangerous and unethical experiment by critical scientists. But just two weeks on from the 19th July unlocking, uh, both infections and now hospital admissions are falling. A similar pattern is emerging elsewhere in the UK where restrictions have been eased, albeit not quite as much as in England. I can testify to that, Mike, because I got on the train to go down here and the announcement was uh, wear a mask because it's considerate of other people's mental health. In yes. Wales, you have to wear a mask. Right. Uh, has the gamble paid off? They asked. 
they then talk about uh, some of the modeling uh, that's been going on around this. That they're saying that this latest peak was predicted. It's important to remember that despite the warnings, government modelers have have always suggested this scenario was possible. So we've got to justify the existence of the modelers. Uh, and then they go on to say, well, what about the doomsday scenario? So they're going to apologize for this. Uh, it's true, though, that ministers and government scientists did express concerns that the situation might have got much worse than it has. Uh, but there was a reason why figures were put forward so publicly. It was in part to influence behavior. So again, we have a further admission of this. Uh, and so they finally ask, is it time to forget COVID? And the answer to that is absolutely not, because COVID plus flu is the concern. Well, that's true. But as we mentioned last week, it's not just COVID plus flu. It's also RSV, the other respiratory virus, which really is a nothing uh, in itself. It doesn't cause any particular risk to humanity at all. Uh, but Moderna, of course, uh, planning a triple vaccine targeting flu, COVID and RSV. So that's why we are uh, seeing stories like that appear in the likes of the BBC. Um, we'll move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. And there are options to help us out there and your help would be very much appreciated. Um, and uh, also do share any of our material on the various platforms, including Brian YouTube, Rumble, BitChute and Odyssey. Uh, and Brian, we have uh, an email in from uh, a viewer. Uh, yes, we do. Well, in fact, we've had a lot of emails in from viewers over these, uh, this particular topic, which is the care or lack of care and the deaths of elderly people within the NHS and the care system. Um, but this uh, particular uh, viewer had flagged up the uh, British Medical Journal's uh, report where the Supreme Court uh, had made judgments. Um, now, they describe it as allowing the murder to continue unabated on our NHS hospital wards. This, this viewer is commenting on what's happening with the elderly. And they say, I can speak from personal experience as I write this. Now, we weren't able to show all of the detail from the email, but uh, this particular individual is telling me a harrowing story about uh, an elderly person who ends up on a hospital ward. Their coherence, their mind is obviously working perfectly well. Um, but within two days, they're suddenly unable to communicate and uh, when this is challenged. So uh, when this is challenged, more or less, the person is told to go away. So what were the concerns about the, uh, uh, the ruling mentioned in the BMJ? Well, uh, the first one was where families and doctors agreed that withdrawal would be in the patient's best interests. And they're talking about the withdrawal of liquids and effectively um, nutrition. So you can get this in the second statement there, who are being kept alive by clinically assisted nutrition and hydration. And uh, our viewer said that's often called eating and drinking. Uh, they're talking about people ending up in a minimally conscious state. And the viewer says, yes, this is usually the case when they're regularly and inappropriately overdosed, overdosing the patients with morphine. But we actually know that the patients are being subjected to other uh, drugs as well. Um, not just coming from one or two viewers, we've been getting a stream of people desperately concerned about the treatment of elderly relatives. And in many cases, people very, very uh, anxious and stressed because relatives have died under pretty horrific um, 
conditions on hospital wards and what causes the uh, reaction from relatives. They say, well, when my relative went in, they were bright and chirpy, albeit they had some minor uh, ailments. But when we saw them days later, they were comatose and in an appalling condition. Now, what what is beginning to be put together, of course, is that we're back on so-called British end-of-life care. And uh, this particular viewer flagged up this uh, document. Now, we can't be sure of the exact date. I'm having to go by the period which Norman Lamb MP, who was the Minister of State for Care and Support, he was chair of this particular meeting on the Liverpool Care Pathway Roundtable meeting. So we know he was in post 2012 to 2015. And uh, this is one of the many debates about end of or supposed end of life care for elderly people. Uh, but if you press the magic button, Mike, we should get a, an insert on this. Uh, what our sharp eyed viewer had seen was that uh, there was some comment about common purpose. So uh, it starts off, the minister welcomed everyone to the meeting. He explained that the conversation would be recorded to ensure an accurate record. Uh, but this was not to be made public. We don't want the public, I'm, I'm putting my own words in here, we don't want the public to understand what is discussed about what is to happen about to our elderly uh, relatives at the end of life. And then uh, paragraph two, which is highlighted with the red arrow, says the minister set out the background and purpose of the meeting. He said all those present shared a common purpose to improve the quality of care at end of life, though there was some disagreement about how best to do it. And what is so offensive about this is that one of, I, as I've said, we've got a meeting about the the end of life, about the death of elderly people. Um, this can't be discussed with the public. This has to be behind closed doors and kept secret. But more or less, the minister is saying, don't worry, we've all got a common purpose. Now, that came in um, in the last 24 hours, that email. But as we were preparing the news today, this email came in. Let's pop that one on the screen. And uh, this says, hi, Brian, for your information, an elderly lady and UK Columns supporter, and I will say a very long-standing supporter and very generous supporter, had a fall on Sunday evening. The care home, it's uh, partly named as a house, has a policy of not moving anyone who's had a fall. And, quote, as the ambulance took 12 hours to arrive, she was on the floor, mercif mercifully carpeted all night. The member of staff I spoke to at the care facility said she's trying to get the policy changed, which would be good, but my fire is reserved for the ambulance service. The carer didn't disagree when I said I'd heard of this sort of thing happening to the elderly and those in care homes. And the lady um, reporting to me then goes on to talk about what she's trying to do. Uh, but the, care, the core point here is that we are getting a trail of emails, a stream of emails, talking about appalling care of our elderly or deaths of elderly people on NHS wards or care facilities. And of course, as we reported on uh, Monday, the Daily Telegraph as one newspaper is well aware of the deaths of tens of thousands of elderly people. Uh, but this is, this is a casual article, and then it's swept under the, under the carpet. Um, 
I'm almost lost for words, Mike. I don't know how you and Alex feel about this, but uh, I have seen elderly people die under truly harrowing conditions. And this has now become commonplace in UK, but apparently it's to be discussed behind closed doors and the public's not to, to be told the true facts. Alex? Yeah, you know, Brian, uh, we're getting more and more detail on this period around the middle of last decade. Um, your tip-off of the first of those sources had a later cut-off date of 2015. By that time, reluctantly, the government and the uh, the NHS had acknowledged that there was such a thing as a, a Liverpool care pathway, uh, and it was claimed that that had been discontinued. But it is only one of a series of things, a whole idea, uh, a genre called end-of-life pathways. Now, the following year, 2016, and we're trying to, as, as, as it's like dragging blood out of a stone, we're finally finding out that the government ran a big exercise, Exercise Cygnus. It was weeks long. There were various spin-offs whose findings have not been published. And we know now from leaks that have come through the Daily Telegraph and others in just recent days, uh, although they haven't reported on it as much as they should, that part of Exercise Cygnus was getting the health secretary of the time, Jonathan Hunt, uh, sorry, Jeremy Hunt, who was horrified by it and broke out of the role play to allow for 4,000 ventilators to be turned off because it was a simulated pandemic. Another study associated with it uh, was what are we going to do about the premature babies? And another was, are we going to get the over 70s onto end of life pathways, which means starving and dehydrating people to death rather than treat them because of supposed uh, pandemic conditions obtaining. Now, this broke over the last few days while I was with my parents, and they're in their early 70s, and there was some somber moments as they look, read these uh, exposures, and I said, you realize what this means? And they said, yes, we would die a hideous death if someone had decided that it was uh, pandemic conditions and our lives weren't being worth being spared. So a lot of stuff was in place by 2016, uh, including the National Health Service agreeing that uh, if the health secretary of the day said, I will not starve the babies and the elderly to death, which Mr. Hunt, to give him credit, said in that role play, he would not do seamlessly. The NHS said, right, stuff you then, we will continue, we'll go over to NHS running the policy and we will switch them off. Uh, now, if anybody wants to find out a bit more about exercise sickness, of course, there is a fantastic yes. article on the UK column website. Use the search box, type in exercise sickness, that's C-Y-G-N-U-S, and, uh, and read that and share it. It's going to be one of the centrepieces of a piece of work that Brian and I have been working on for quite some weeks now, uh, exercise sickness 2016. I think if you start there and work both forwards and backwards in time, you will understand everything that's gone, gone on rather better. Yes. Uh, right, Alex, uh, you were a guest with James Dellingpole uh, a day or two ago. Yeah, I seem to have gone up in the world, Mike, in uh, the people who want me, because Dellingpole is, is quite big in Britain and internationally now. And um, yes, yeah, so he, he was quite keen to get me. I know he's very effusive about all his guests, but uh, let's see a little clip where he and I are talking about the, uh, the Oxford and Cambridge mindset. I'm very conscious that some of my audience are they've joined me down the rabbit hole and some of them are, are, are so far advanced down the hole they're even on your level and yet others are still kind of stuck in stuck in normie world and and this is why one of the reasons I, I wanted to establish who you are and your journey I think people can understand things better if, yes. if there's a sort of gradualist approach I mean I, I think one of the problems we have those of us who are down the rabbit hole we desperately want to evangelize. We want, we want people to know what's really going on and it matters to us. And every time we do so, we come up against a brick wall because we sound like complete kooks. 
you know, it, it's... yes, but you know, James, it's it's like nine eleven. Uh, I was saying to the the, the extra time segment for uh, subscribers to UK column the other day, uh, just after the main news, we do one of those for our subscribers. Uh, I was saying the other day that uh, with the current debate over the virus uh, issues, uh, terrain theory, germ theory, German new medicine, we don't need to take a particular partisan position. The nine eleven truthers split into the lie hops and the my hops and the, and the various other camps very arcane all you need to do and you know the fine minds architectures architects engineers pilots and others that, that put their minds to 9-11 they didn't need to work out what energy weapon was used ultimately they simply needed to say i am not convinced that the official narrative makes sense intellectually from first principles a very scottish enlightenment approach and i am not persuaded of the veracity of the people who are telling me to believe it that's all you need to do to keep the the, the broad church on board really. yes Oh, that, uh, intellectual agnosticism of the best kind, Aristotelian, you know, intellectualism, the kind, not not faux Oxbridge dilettante uh, intellectualism of the 20th century, but there I say the kind of intellectualism that my parents caught the tail end of at St. Andrews in the 60s, where you learn broad numbers of subjects and at the end you have your Socratic elenkos and you say, well, that's what I know, that's what I don't know, that's enough for me. Dunningpole was pretty keen to, to ring me like a sponge for everything. You know, what's Satanism, Alex? Uh, what's gone wrong with Oxbridge, Alex? And uh, there may be follow-ups. I know he's very keen to follow up with all his guests and he doesn't have infinite bandwidth, but uh, I do hope I will uh, manage to follow up with him. And uh, I got a rather interesting uh, email through my UK column account pretty much straight away from an old uh, public school in Oxbridge chum showing that I'm not al alone in that sector as being a dissident. Uh, the chap said, Alex, I remember you from an advanced Greek summer school and Cambridge. I was very struck by what you said, referring to this interview with Dellingpole, about how the mainstream churches are very obedient and compliant with the UK government. He adds, it struck a chord with me that you recommended the Dutch Reformed Church. The example of the brave Boer resistance to the empire is heartening. They were even lauded by the British in the post-war settlements. And he concludes, it's heartening to see someone from my Oxbridge generation standing up to the tyranny. I do remember you being a bit of an oddball, but a nice one. And he got even more laudatory about how I was so brave, but I thought that would be a bit self-regarding to put that on screen. But it just goes to show a bit of persistence and being an oddball and, and not being a hedonist, because this chap was honest enough to admit his mind wasn't on his studies. He was a hedonist in his Oxbridge days. Uh, a bit of thinking and you will triumph in the end because the truth will out. Yes. Okay, Brian, let's uh, move on to, uh, to the United Nations. Uh, well, we're moving on, but we're moving uh, back because actually this, this little segment is based on what the ninth Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, was saying back on the 14th of April 2020. Uh, but I think it's, it's a very good find by uh, one of our viewers because it, it enables us to have a look at how media was being controlled over the whole of the last sort of 12 months. So let's have a look at what this gentleman had to say. And uh, the first phrase that jumps out is with common cause. Now, common cause um, used within the United States a lot, but um, a connection between common cause and common purpose, I would say so. So with common cause for common sense and facts, we can defeat COVID-19 and build a healthier, more equitable, just and resilient world. So these are the fine words. He goes on, the global misinfodemic is spreading, harmful health advice and snake oil solutions are proliferating, falsehoods are fulfilling the airwaves. 
and uh, wild conspiracy theories are infecting the internet. My goodness, this man was on reheat. Hatred is going viral, stigmatizing and vilifying people and groups. Today, I'm announcing a, a new United Nations communications response initiative to flood the internet with facts and science while countering the growing scourge of misinformation, a poison that is putting even more lives at risk. So this is talking just about controlling the whole narrative. Sorry, pop that one back, uh, Mike. I, I'll, I'll cover this and then just talk a little bit. So here we are, the key statement for me, the vaccine is trust. First, trust in science. I salute the journalists and others fact-checking the mountain of misleading stories and social media protests. So don't, don't mess around, trust. Social media companies must do more to root out hate and harmful assertions about COVID-19. And uh, we've got another one here. Second, trust in the institutions grounded in responsive, responsible, evidence-based governance and leadership. I'm smiling as I'm reading this, but really, this is really so dangerous. Trust in each other, as long as you believe what uh, he tells you to believe. Mutual respect and upholding human rights must be our compass in navigating this crisis. Together, let's reject the lies and nonsense out there. So this man is, is quite incredible. Uh, he's setting the policy. You've got to believe what he tells you to believe. You must only believe his, the United Nations version of what the scientific truth is. You mustn't listen to any scientists who, who challenge it. And then here's the, the crunch if we come up to date now. So we're into the 2nd of August, 2021. The world needs a global vaccine plan to at least double production of the COVID-19 vaccines and ensure equitable distribution. We need greater sharing of top technology and know-how, strengthening and building local production capacities, addressing supply chain bottlenecks. So don't think you're just gonna trust the UN. The UN is just pro-vaccine, but trust them, trust the science, and they will look after our welfare. And uh, if we have a look at his Twitter page, just to get a feel, I rather felt that the shot of him top right is almost as though he's got hand on heart. You can trust me. I'm here to help all of you poor people. And he says in the uh, banner headline for his Twitter page, we will never, ever give up making this world better for everyone everywhere. So um, if I can just uh, point that back, I think, at Alex, this is utopia. In the future, we're going to li live in a world that this man and his colleagues has created, everything will be okay as long as you trust us and you do exactly what we say. Well, this was coming in in the mid-19th century already in science fiction and eugenicist writing that uh, you can get rid of the useless eaters. And it was very popular in the British establishment uh, because in the end, it will be worth it for jam tomorrow. In fact, uh, when I was at rugby school, as we were just talking about public school in Oxbridge a moment ago, they have carved in stone on one of the walls of the chapel a couplet from the new Decalogue by, uh, I think it's Arthur Hugh Clough, an old rugby, and thou shalt not kill 
but needs not strive officiously to stay alive, which is nice Victorian rhyme for it's all right to let the people fall by the wayside. You know, that was a deliberate modern twist on the Ten Commandments. Uh, whoever makes it to the brand new tomorrow uh, through the, uh, the Stahlgewitter, the steel storm, as it were, they, they, they will have a, a great brand new tomorrow. That's, that seems to be what Mr. Guterres is saying. Uh, who should take health advice from Mr. Guterres, by the way? I mean, my Dutch mother-in-law would make that point, first of all. She would say he didn't get that double chin from cold water. Uh, but of course, uh, Brian, trust, uh, you've got to trust the science, you've got to trust the institutions, you've got to trust the vaccines, but you've also got to trust the media. Uh, well, you've got to, well, you've got to trust the old boys network because you do a little bit of research and where, where do you find Mr. Guterres? You find him in the club. Um, what is the club? Well, it's the club of Madrid. Um, don't worry, trust the Club Madrid, because this is a world alliance for democracy. It's got some amazing names, including, including Gordon Brown involved with it. So this is an old boys club. Uh, yes, there are ladies or, pe or persons who can have children are involved. Um, but basically, this is an old boys club running democracy. This is not democracy. This is corporate takeover of democracy. Um, but the arrogance of this man in telling everybody that uh, just trust us and trust the science. Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, can't, you can't speak out if you're speaking, talking about any kind of alternative narrative or any counter narrative to the, to the official narrative. Uh, and in order to try to get control of that once again, uh, in the UK here, we've got uh, a new su super committee. We mentioned this last week briefly, a new super committee created to examine the draft online safety bill in the UK. Now, anybody that's in, under any doubt should remember that the online safety bill in the UK is going to be the framework which is used globally. Um, but uh, a new super committee headed up by the wonderful Damien Collins, who is a former chairman of the, uh, uh, the Digital Culture Media and Sports Select Committee. He is chairing that. Uh, and last week when we mentioned this, we made the point that uh, Tory party representative Suzanne Webb is also going to be, uh, well, she in fact is honoured to be picked, her word, picked to take first look at this very important new piece of proposed legislation. Now, we don't need to worry, do we, Alex, because it's all about freedom of speech. I'm just going to choose one, one graphic from the range uh, on the online uh, harms legislation. The bill will ensure that people in the UK can express themselves freely online and participate in pluralistic and robust debate. The first part of that is correct because the government's position, and in fact this is being echoed in other places at the moment, but the government's position is that you will be free to express yourself online. You can set up a website, uh, you can do whatever you like, but do not think that your uh, freely given opinions are going to be promoted on social media platforms or in search engines. So here is the wonderful Damien Collins, uh, former chair of the uh, DCMS Select Committee, as I say. Uh, he said uh, when he was when this was announced uh, on Monday, uh, social media companies making money out of a system that is also exposing people to harm, and they are responsible for it. Uh, he went on to say their systems are designed to promote content, to derive engagement, so they are actually promoting illegal content. Ooh, citation well, required, I think, for that, Mike. They absolutely, might want to sue him. Absolutely. I think somebody wants to sue him for that statement because it is absolutely false. Because in the legislation itself, they are talking about harmful comment and they're making the point that the harmful comment, comment, uh, comment includes uh, comment which is not illegal. It is legal comment, but it falls below the threshold of illegality. But where is the evidence that uh, social media platforms in general are actually promoting 
legal content. It's one thing to say that there is illegal content on there, but to suggest that it's being promoted is something uh, completely different. And he went on to say, and I think we have to consider what the right sanction for that should be. Well, actually, he doesn't need to worry about it because the point that I've been trying to make for the last uh, couple of years is that from the point that Theresa May and Amber Rudd, who was Home Secretary at the time, brought the social media companies into Downing Street to discuss this back in 2017. 17 or 18, 18 yes. yeah. Um, they have been 100% on board. We have seen the censorship agenda from the social media companies progress over the last two or three years. In fact, David Cameron warmed the seat for them, didn't he? Because he had the head of Google very closely involved with number 10, and then Mrs. May took over and we got that. He did indeed, that's absolutely right. So, so they're on board with this already. And if you need any more evidence of that, then have a look at this. This is from Jigsaw. Uh, this is related to Google. Uh, and the uh, it's a blog post. Hit uh, clusters spread disinformation across social media. Mapping their networks could disrupt their uh, reach. So what are they talking about? These are Google's researchers. They're not happy that people are migrating to platforms that don't censor misinformation. So they're pretty unhappy about Rumble and Gab and all the other platforms that are out there, uh, which the accusation is that they're echo chambers, but that's not the problem. The problem here is that they're still on the internet. They're still, the content that's on there is still available to people. It's still being shared. Uh, and so they're talking about hate speech. They're talking about COVID-19 misinformation. They're talking about social networks such as Gab, but also Telegram. And I can see on the image there, Mike, Vkontakje, which is simply the Russian equivalent of Facebook. It's it's very vanilla, bland. It's just the, the ordinary uh, Friends Reunited type uh, reunion, reunion site for, for Russian speakers. Right. But so, it hasn't followed the West into censorship. That's what they're worried about. Indeed. So their proposals are based on 2019 research about what they describe as hate clusters and COVID-19 misinformation spreading clusters on six social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Gab, 4chan, Telegram, and VK. Um, and they're saying, uh, they say extremists and people who spread misinformation uh, use more than one platform to communicate with others. Uh, just one platform can be limiting, they say, because numerous studies show that removed content often simply resurfaces on other platforms. They say that a dynamic internet-wide approach is necessary to flag and censor content. Uh, and uh, so they're talking about the fact that uh, these uh, clusters, the, as they describe them, are decentralized. They're designed to subvert content moderation efforts and gain resilience to deplatforming. Uh, and they say that uh, uh, they, the, the, the blocking links can add friction that pot uh, potentially deters uh, those uh, en route to harmful content and weakens the redundancies of the hate network. And this is the point. You will have, under the new online harms legislation, online safety bill, as it's being called, the right to say what you like, but the search engines and the social media companies are already engaged in making sure that you, whatever you say is not heard by anybody else. You'll have the right to say it. Freedom of speech will be maintained but no one will hear what you have to say. Of course, say. Mike, the, the US have the First Amendment, so in the national parks, when they got infiltrated by common purpose uh, thinkers, as it were, they had to do something about that. So they set up free speech areas, basically protest pens, in the middle of the woods within the national park. And then when Jack Straw was Home Secretary in Britain, we had the similar pronouncement sort of halfway to the, the online era where he said, of course, there must always be places where people can express themselves. Hint, it will not be anywhere visible. Yes, but 
if we go back to Damien Collins for a second, Damien Collins has been one of the lead propagandists that disinformation exists, that disinformation is harmful. Something has to be disinformation uh, done about disinformation and misinformation on the internet. He, uh, since he left his role as chairman of the DCMS Select Committee, he has not been no less vocal and has been speaking out at every opportunity mm. to really ram home uh, the uh, some momentum to get online safety legislation through. Uh, but Brian, my question then is, is Damien Collins independent? Uh, well, simple answer to that is, I don't think so. Um, we've got to give a big thank you to yet another UK column viewer. What's so tremendous about our audience is the amount of research they're doing. So have a look at this email, which came in as we were uh, or I saw it in the queue as we were preparing the news. Hello, Brian. While I was reading A State of Fear by Laura Dodsworth, my attention was drawn to this fact-checking company, Infotagion, the independent expert fact-checking service for coronavirus, COVID-19, sourced from the World Health Organization, UK and other official government advice. And then there was a link through to the website. And then the... Uh, Viewer said the part that took my breath away was a cow was a co-founder, my local MP, Damien Collins MP for Folkestone, Kent. So on one hand, this man is busy constructing policy, and then with the other hand, he's working in the background with commercial friends and colleagues in order to put in organizations that are going to drive the narrative whichever way they think is appropriate. So if we bring Infotagion up on screen here, uh, we've got the mission that Infotagion has been created in response to the information contagion about COVID-19 and the public health crisis. Uh, the disinformation we see every day about this deadly virus can spread just as far and fast as the real thing, yet this can also harm you and those that you love. That's why we've got to fight back. Um, much of this disinformation exists in private channels, and that very many people have that very many people have access to those channels, but not everyone can see. So we need you to share with us the things that don't look right. And we will check the facts and give you the truth. <laughs> I'll read that again. We will check the facts and give you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I mean, this is this is this is difficult for me to read out. It is so outrageous uh, that this man is working with government on one hand, and then with the other hand, he's 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 working with these colleagues. So let, let's have a look at some of the people that are involved in this this. Uh, organization. Um, it says that uh, Infotagion, uh, COVID-19, is an organization created by Damien Collins MP, former chair of the Digital Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee, who also led the inquiries on disinformation and fake news. And who's he working with? David Sefton, a, quote, venture capital investor. So that's a man whose total raison d'etre is to make money from whatever he's involved in. Um, so now we've got we've got capital investors helping to skew uh, truth uh, for the public to digest and believe wherever it comes up. Um, we've got uh, the executive team of Iconic Labs, PLC, John Quinion, Liam 
Harrington and Samuel Regan Asante, who before previously created Unilad, then the world's largest social media publisher. Branding and design was provided by Chris Gunn and Tom Love, founders of Love Gun, the award-winning design agency. Now, I don't know what this is because you can't tell from the uh, from the website itself. I think I've got another slide to come up on screen, which is what people see from their website when you go to Unilad. So let's let's have a look at that. The world as it happens. Um, I. I haven't shown it, but if you scroll down a bit, you can see more detail. Here's the about. It says that Unilad was launched in 2014 as a major, quote, youth platform for breaking news and, uh, and uh, sorry, relatable, what's that? Retracting, relatable, relatable viral yeah, content. Yeah, the print's a little bit small there. So, so Lad's Bible Group, this is all about media control, but it's all all, all tied in with this former minister. So what is he about? Is he working to make money and control the media? Or is he, uh, well, it looks to me, it's my opinion, this is what he's trying to do. And then he's he's changing policy in government. This is an incestuous relationship, which the public ought to be calling out. Yeah, well, indeed. Something just doesn't quite stack up here, does it, Mike? Because uh, Infotagion uses in its wording and logo the idea that people are getting contagion, contamination, uh, with information. Mm. And yet you've just shown that the same guys are in this, uh, in another wheeze, a, a very recognisable uh, provider that's been big on YouTube and other places, Unilad, which basically seeks to school young men in correct thinking about sex, violence and whatnot. Um, and there they're talking about having viral content. So viral, as in it spreads like wildfire, is okay because that makes money. But uh, when it comes to information uh, that they don't like, which they call information, not mis- or disinformation, we can't have that because that's spreading like a virus. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, well, look, let's move on. Uh, and uh, well, here is uh, ins Inside Climate News and why the Paris Climate Agreement might be doomed to fail. Um, well, sorry, I put Brian back on screen there. I do apologize. Right, here we go. Uh, so why the climate, uh, Paris Climate Agreement might be doomed to fail, an economist argues that the international accord, which depends on collective action, does not include the kinds of incentives and penalties that would ensure that countries do their part. And so what's this about? Well, basically, there, he is saying uh, that th this whole idea of voluntary uh, engagement on climate issues just hasn't worked. Uh, really, they need to go to mandatory engagement in climate issues. So he's an economist who wants to be a legislator. Y yes, yeah. but but uh, so he uses CFCs and uh, the uh, the accords over uh, CFCs as an example of where it was a mandatory thing for countries to to comply. Uh, so it's very again parallels with the vaccination discussion about whether there something is. should be uh, mandatory or not. And and the argument within senior economists now is that. Uh, really, things should become mandatory. Um, and uh, well, they highlighted uh, work from 2015. Uh, they took India as a case uh, because India didn't join the Montreal Protocol, which was about uh, enforcing the CFC restrictions. Um, and this was because, uh, uh, and the, in fact, the only reason that India did join the Montreal Protocol was because effectively everybody else taking part destroyed the market for CFCs, and so it was, it was pointless to them staying aside from it. But uh, his argument here is that uh, uh, India continues to use coal 
uh, and very sinful. It's absolutely sinful. They can't continue. You would get twenty four seven energy for the uh, domestic the, population. Then you right, can't have that. You can't have that. So under the Paris Agreement, because that's a, they they uh, are basically not obliged to dump coal uh, and they're continuing to use coal, and that that's got to be made mandatory. So the quote here is: uh, India wanted to develop its economy uh, and reduce poverty. Burning more more coal was the simplest way to do that. Uh, and the accord gave no compelling incentive to look at alternatives. So there you go. Um, we can't have people in India with energy. We Quite. can't stop that. And of course, the, the, uh, if you want to complete the circle with COVID preparations, there was a, a, a stage in the COVID preparations that was made years ago, was that the WHO, uh, arrogating to itself an international legal status, uh, made, made a change to its rules that unless you opted out, you were obliged under so-called international law uh, to uh, accept the WHO's pandemic definitions, right? So that's the same, but they haven't quite done that with the climate uh, wheeze, but they're, they're going to do that next so that you won't have to go through this stage of acceding to a protocol. You will be deemed, including in your own domestic courts, but the way they train the judges now, you'll be deemed to have acceded to it unless you expressly opt out. Right, so let me introduce you then to Gary Gensler, who's uh, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, and this, of course, is the financial regulator in the United States. Uh, and he was speaking at a webinar which was uh, sponsored by Principles for Responsible Investment, and it was called Climate and the Global Financial Markets. Uh, and he was speaking uh, about, a, well, about a week ago now on this. Uh, he said, uh, investors are looking for consistent, comparable and decision useful disclosures so they can put their money in companies that fit their needs. So now we're starting to see the actual infrastructure being built on how you make a decision about whether a company is being uh, is, is fitting in with the uh, new Green Deal and is doing the right things, or whether it's a company which isn't. Um, so uh, uh, this then was picked up by the uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, and uh, their headline here, SEC Ways, making companies liable for climate disclosure. So they are calling on companies to make climate disclosure so that you can absolutely understand whether you want to invest in them or not. But they're a commission. Did Congress give them this this discretion? Uh, no, they did not. No, they're absolutely punching above their weight. They've no entitlement to do this. But of course, because this is part of the agenda, nobody is saying too much about it. Uh, he said, uh, well, I've maybe put that one up already. But look, what I wanted to highlight here, of course, is this is all about Mark Carney. Uh, because if you remember what Mark Carney said a couple of years ago, at, a at the core of the system now, these questions are being asked if you're on the right side or on the wrong side. And if you're on the wrong side, what are you going to do about it? So you've got to get on the right side. And in order to demonstrate that you're on the right side, it's like having a COVID pass. You've got to, have a, you've got to make your declaration about how you're on the right side as a company. Uh, Carney went on to say, companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. If you don't make your disclosure and you don't say the right things on your disclosure, you're going to go bankrupt. Uh, and uh, there will be industry sectors and firms that do very well during this process because they'll be part of the solution. Uh, but there will also be ones that lag behind and they will be punished. This was uh, Carney's position. Um, and uh, well, we're, not, we're not now starting to see the infrastructure being put in place through the regulators for how we're going to make a decision, how people are going to make a decision about what's the right kind of company and the wrong kind of company. Anyone who hasn't already should go to ukcolumn.org and still on the front page, Ian Davis's excellent article, The uh, uh, Not-So-Great Carbon Reset, which yes. is the best initial presentation for people of Carney and the uh, August, 19, August 2019 meeting at Jackson Hole and all the other things that have led up to this position. Yes, uh, but uh, it's not going 100% well for the narrative. Um, this is uh, uh, Science Magazine, and the headline is U UN Climate Panel Confronts 
implausibly hot forecasts of future warning, uh, warming. Now, of course, we've been highlighting the parallels uh, between uh, the climate policy agenda and the COVID policy agenda. At the center of both of these uh, policy agendas, of course, is computer modeling. That is what's driving the policy uh, in each of these cases. Uh, but unfortunately, the latest models seem to be driving a bit too hard, Alex, uh, because even, even the top climate scientists who are totally engaged on the whole climate change narrative are saying that the, uh, the claims in the latest models about the, the degrees of warming that will be taking place over the next few years are implausible. It's implausibly high. Uh, they this, this, is, this is polite language for they won't buy that. It, th th that's exactly what it is. This is polite language for they won't buy that. Uh, and so they are attempting that what they're in the process of doing in time for the latest IPCC report, they're attempting to adjust uh, the models to put in some kind of breaks on, uh, on it. Th there's new speak for adjustment these days, and they're downwardly revise. Uh, no, th they're not going to. They're not going to quite do this. But they they are saying that they are. Uh, it's it's become clear over the last year. Uh, that we can't avoid making these changes uh, to the models. A nice impersonal statement. It has become clear. They're not saying to whom or on what basis. That that's correct. Um, so what are they focusing on? They're they're focusing on the possibility that they haven't quite got the cloud models correct, uh, and so they're going to make adjustments to the numbers around clouds, uh, and they hope that that is going to bring uh, the headline figures. Okay, so this is, this is from computer says no to computer didn't have full information. Uh, or or computer, they, they, they just need to tweak the information yeah. just a little bit, yeah. just to get the right answer because the I've, answer... I've heard that water vapor right. has a fairly major effect on uh, global warming and cooling, Mike. I have heard that, but uh, I'm not sure how much of that they're taking into account. So anyway, no, things not going too well for the uh, latest IPCC report. We'll, we'll keep you posted on how that goes over the next few weeks. Let's move on to uh, defense issues, Alex. Uh, and if you remember a few weeks ago, uh, the classified Ministry of Defence documents found at the bus stop. Uh, this seems to happen quite commonly in the UK. <laughs> Almost as if it was meant to happen. Yeah, well, indeed. Uh, I mean, it was a surprise at the time. It was in the BBC. Because somebody found these uh, confidential documents. Rain-soaked, we're told, but strangely not disintegrated. Perfectly legible. Perfectly legible. And the first thing they did with them, rather than return them to the Ministry of Defence, was to give them to the BBC. Because that's do. what you do. Mm. Uh, and this was all about the route that HMS... Uh, Defender was going to take uh, through, let's just remind ourselves of the route, um, through the Black Sea, past Crimea, uh, from uh, Odessa to yeah. Georgia. Uh, but it became a bit of a problem because the Russians didn't like uh, this trip through the Black Sea. And they, they were standing their nose at the Russians at their home port. The Black Sea fleet is based in Sevastopol. And of course, Britain has invaded Sevastopol in the past. So um, it, it didn't exactly please the Russians. No, it didn't. But nonetheless, uh, the British uh, defence press uh, discussing Russian aggression uh, here. Was it Russian aggression that when the Russians came out? Uh, uh, to, to well, sort of say to we're the here British... in Plymouth. We've got the hoe behind us, Plymouth Sound, right? So um, that supposedly behind us here uh, is is uh, Britain's um, well, supposedly second most important naval base of old. There's no warships in it now. If the Russians sailed a few miles out to sea from there and said we're doing a freedom of navigation operation, it's nothing to do with Britain, and we sent out a I don't know a destroyer perhaps to observe them, would that be British aggression? This is a very good question, not in the British press anyway, it's certainly Russian aggression, but it, it didn't end there because if you remember at the time, there were uh, suggestions that uh, HMS Defender had left port and uh, before it had actually left port uh, and uh, had 
uh, sailed right up to uh, right. Sevastopol. The, the, her ne his Netherlands uh, was HNMS, so the Netherlands uh, Navy ship Avertsen and this uh, British destroyer were uh, plotted on AIS going there and back. Except Which is a bit odd because uh, navies don't use AIS to track their own or other people's vessels. It's a commercial system. Uh, well, it is a commercial system, but the fact is that after the U.S. Navy kept crashing into things like oh, yes, two the years Pacific ago, Fleet, yeah, Pacific Fleet. Then what happened then was that uh, when not on active service, navy vessels have been using a AIS. So anyway, the allegation at the time, hinted at but not explicitly said, was that the Russians had somehow hacked the AIS system to. Uh, make this false track and make people believe that HMS Defender had gone out uh, when it hadn't. Um, well, here is, uh, let me introduce you to SkyTruth. Um, if you can see it, you can change it. Apparently, SkyTruth is a conservation technology nonprofit. That's a rather uh, interesting headline, isn't yes. it? If you can uh, see the track, the path of HMS Evertson, you can change it. Well, uh, indeed, that's a very interesting point there, Alex. So SkyTruth is a conservation technology nonprofit using satellite imagery and data to inspire people to protect the environment. And they have come out with a report, uh, which has been picked up by the BBC and others. Uh, systematic data analysis reveals false vessel tracks. And they are claiming that, that they have tracked 100 cases of uh, military ships uh, having false tracks on the AIS system since last year. It must all be Russian hackers, Mike. Uh, that is not explicitly said by them, but it's certainly hinted at by others, as we'll see in a second. Um, so what they're saying is analysis of track data from the AIS broadcast reveals vessel locations have been simulated for a number of ships, including military vessels. This false information could compromise vessel safety, decrease confidence in a crucial collision avoidance system, and potentially spark international conflict. Uh, and uh, so what was he talking about? Uh, he was talking about AIS tracks in groups of sailboats in the Atlantic. Uh, he was talking about... Uh, uh, the same for military, 100 naval vessels with suspected false AIS tracks identified by his algorithm between uh, 27th of August last year and 15th of July this year. Uh, but I see one of our viewers in Belfast is remembering that a James Bond film had a trope about a British warship having its uh, path changed surreptitiously. Yes, th yes, that's true. But uh, this was the report from about the time from uh, the news. A GPS data shows Royal Navy warship HMS Defender charging towards Russian naval base was faked, say MOD. And just to give you a quote from this, Dr. Paul Flenley, an expert in international politics at the University of Portsmouth, said the situation around the invasion of Crimea was covered in all kinds of deceptions. Uh, there were Russian forces masquerading as local militia at the time. It does not surprise me they would try to employ tactics of misinformation to create their own narratives. So, I mean, this this is completely disingenuous because this statement is taken out of context. This statement was made with respect to the invasion of Crimea, and this report is attempting to put that on this faked AIS data. There I is... think we, we need a Lieutenant Commander of the Royal Navy to, uh, to clarify this for us, but uh, I showed the video that the, the Russian MOD released of the shot across the bows of the, uh, the British destroyer of the pair when it really was sailing past Sevastopol. Uh, it's it's rather a bit of a, a false trail or, or or a red herring, isn't it? Whether the, the the track was altered, because in broad daylight you could see the Royal Navy sailing tantalisingly close to uh, the home base of the Russian Black Sea Fleet when they gave them the shot across the bows. They were really there at that point. That that's absolutely true. They were there at that point. They weren't there at the point that the the trail seems to show that they were. But what I can't work out is in whose interest it is to claim that the Russians are doing this. I'm not quite sure where this particular narrative is going, Brian, but 
But, uh, you know, it is a bit pathetic that, that this drum keeps being banged by the Ministry of Defence and, and the uh, British government. Well, Mike, it, it never stops banging. The drum never stops because quite quite obviously the there is the intent to brand the Russians as the troublemakers at every level. Um, I think we've got to come back to what was in that document, because if I remember correctly, within that document was at least a paragraph saying, well, actually, uh, we are going to be going very close to the Russian base, close enough that this might cause some pushback. Uh, so that was mentioned in the document. And then in reality, obviously, the ships followed that aggressive track. And not surprisingly, the Russians did push back. So what was what was the British government's agenda? It was to provoke the Russians, which they did. It, it was in it was in the document. It was reported as being in the document. Yes, that, that's the document that was found in the bin. There's an international yes. law issue here as well, because Georgia and Ukraine, of course, have these separatist territories and uh, Her Majesty's government is always saying we are for the territorial integrity of Ukraine. We don't acknowledge that Crimea is Russian, but uh, only the Russians bother to talk about Crimea and Sevastopol, because at, at law, Sevastopol, the city and its hinterland, being a Russian base of very great importance, was never incorporated, not even in Khrushchev's day, into Crimea. Right. And you know, even if we are to concede the point that Crimea is not uh, accepted by the Royal Navy's government uh, as uh, as Russian territory, Sevastopol is. Uh, we all signed up via the Minsk group and such like uh, to accepting that there was a Russian uh, base in Sevastopol. And that is what we taunted by standing outside. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been a Russian base in Sevastopol since before the Soviet Union existed? Of course, yes. hundreds of years. And it's, it's the only warm water port for Russia. You know, for the, the, all the Baltic fleet and the, uh, the Pacific fleet have their, their ports ice up a lot of the time. Mm. Okay, well, Alex, uh, then the question is, why isn't the military mandating uh, COVID-19 vaccines? It's interesting that the Atlantic uh, is now uh, going into this. So this uh, for, for those who don't read the US press much, the Atlantic is very venerable and comes from the abolitionist era. It was uh, the New England Journal of Progressive Thought. Uh, and now they've uh, called in a lady from think tank land. Uh, and of course, they don't often write this, the headlers and subheaders themselves, but we're told that it isn't a close call. The military in the US must mandate COVID vaccination. So who's written this? Cory Shake. And it's just, it, I thought, intriguing that among the many potted bios of her that are online, uh, we see that uh, she's now Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, one of the endless uh, US think tanks. And uh, before joining that, she was over here. She was the Deputy Director General of the IISS in London. I wonder how much of her thinking emanates from that stint in her career. Mm. It's not just her pushing a think tank policy, though, because the Army Times in the US reported at the beginning of last month, July the 1st, that uh, the Army is telling its individual commands around the world that they should prepare for, in less than a month now, September, the same time as for the French are mandating uh, COVID jabs for many parts of their population, there should be uh, Army uh, mandatory vaccination in place for COVID. Uh, and it's going further than that, because, of course, we have seen the uh, Biden White House, or are we supposed to say the, the Biden-Harris White House these days, um, mandating uh, that all federal employees and some contractors should be jabbed. And we now see that Defence One is reporting, as of just a week ago, the 29th of July, that there have been some informal discussions, reports Marcus Weisgerber, about requiring COVID jabs for defence companies, for the likes of Boeing and, and Lockheed. So, you know, come, not, come thou not near a base uh, unless you have been jabbed. 
Well, indeed. Okay, and uh, what's uh, what's Corona Babble talking about? Corona Babble is a good blog. I like their um, uh, their strapline. Coronavirus, the germ that erodes human rights. Here, Dr. Gary Sidley, who is a leading light in Heart, a group which had a, sadly a sting operation done against it last week by the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, main, the main, mainstream narrative crusaders. Dr. Gary Sidley is a retired um, uh, psychiatrist, consult, clinical psychiatrist of, of many decades experience. And he led the charge against the uh, BPS, the, uh, the professional body, which Dr. Bruce Scott and others have, 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 have taken up cudgels against. Because, right, this is the British Psychological yes, Society. Yes, exactly, the yes. British Psychological Society, because their guidelines and their, 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 their founding documents all ma uh, for, forbid them from messing with people's minds, in layman speak, in the way that nudge policy uh, has, has been doing. So Gary Sidley has now published on Corona Babel that he's got his comeback uh, from the BPS hierarchy. So he writes that after six months of evasion and obfuscation, the British Psychological Society, or BPS, has made its position clear. It sees nothing ethically questionable about deploying covert psychological strategies, often referred to as nudges, the UK column was in the lead 10, 12 years ago in reporting this, on the British people as a means of increasing compliance with public health restrictions. And you know, people who haven't read Dr. Bruce Scott's articles on ukcolumn.org uh, should use the, uh, the, the search facility on ukcolumn.org to find those articles, Bruce Scott, and see exactly what the problem is there. Uh, uh, that is a very interesting term, covert psychological strategy. So well, they, it goes into detail on this. Acknowledgement that this is something that the general population is not supposed to see exactly. or understand. Well, the, the adjective in question was part of the complaint. So let's go on to the next slide and, and find out. Uh, so uh, Gary writes, since the beginning of the year, I, together with many other psychological specialists, have expressed our concerns about the use of nudges, the formal term is applied behavioral psychology, as recommended by government-employed behavioral scientists. It's a bit like the, uh, the Joint Commission on the Vaccines and uh, Joint Committee on Vaccines and Inoculations, isn't it? They issue advice and recommendations to save the government embarrassment. Um, and so Gary goes on, particularly alarming has been the deployment of covert interventions that often impact below people's level of awareness, messing with the subconscious, and which rely on fear inflation, shaming, and scapegoating as the means of promoting compliance, otherwise known as adherence. So on the 1st of July, he received the BPS's uh, head honcho's reply, which is, Dr. Roger Paxton, chair of the BPS Ethics Committee, says overall the Ethics Committee believed that the contributions of psychologists in responding to the pandemic were entirely consistent, oh, believed, by the way, key verb here, uh, with the BPS ethic, Code of Ethics and Conduct, which is what uh, Bruce Scott and others have pointed, pointed out the, the problem with. Uh, and Dr. Paxton says this that the, uh, the contributions of psychologists were consistent with that, demonstrating social responsibility I wonder what, what happens to the word responsibility when you put the, the adjective social before, a bit like social distancing, and the competent and responsible employment of psychological expertise. Uh, now, Gary then picks this apart a bit and says that it's clear from this latest response that the BPS is suggesting that the strategies we called, called indirect uh, were rather than, sorry, that, that the strategies we referred to were indirect rather than covert. So they're saying, hang on, you can't call them covert. They're just indirect, you see. It's all in the use of language, as you expect from uh, psychological geniuses. The application of psychology in this instance 
fell outside the realm of individual health decisions, so informed consent was not an issue. That's the suggestion as interpreted by the complainant. Levels of fear within the general population were proportionate, a nice European human rights term, to the objective risk posed by the virus, rather than having been strategically inflated. Uh, sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, but surely that is a, a medical decision, whether whether it's proportionate. Are these people qualified? Are these medical doctors? No, of course not. Think, of course they're not. So are they qualified to make that judgment? Uh, no, but they might feel and believe that they, they acted responsibly, and that would be enough for them, wouldn't it? And the psychologist's role in the pandemic response demonstrated the competent and responsible employment of psychological expertise. Furthermore, says Gary, the failure to address the shaming and scapegoating issues, so he, they only tried to take one of the three legs off his stool, as it were, clearly implies that the BBC, BPS views these tactics as acceptable. So by their silence, they're saying, now wrong with shaming, now wrong with scapegoating. Uh, you might have a point on the other one. Uh, I think we had one more slide. Yes, on. There, yes. there we are. So the BB BPS on its website, says Gary, claims to be the organization responsible for the promotion of excellence and ethical practice in the science education and application of the discipline, that is psychology. Also, their code of ethics highlights the BPS's aim to promote those same things. Despite these earnest aspirations, their outright dismissal of our ethical concerns was predictable. A cursory glance at the membership of SPIB, you heard it first from UK Column, what SPIB is, uh, shows that several of its members are also influential figures in the BPS. This would be the likes of Susan Mickey, the communist, uh, who of course, uh, told, uh, even to the, the shock of mainstream journalists, uh, told interviewers that some of the measures should stay in place, quote, forever. Mm. And many other members of SPIB told Laura Dodsworth, the author we mentioned earlier in this news, uh, that they liked the idea of masking because it was very uh, solidarity promoting. It gave people a good feeling of all being in it together. Not much science there. Uh, indeed. Uh, Brian, before we, uh, because we're absolutely out of time, but before we end, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, well, of course, they're being dismissive of something that is, got to use that word again, dangerous, uh, because uh, uh, applied psychology being used on members of the public who are already under great stress, no risk assessment carried out as to any possible adverse mental health effects was ever done. So I think this is a truly appalling uh, response coming in from the psychologist. But the other thing is that we're in the discussion you've just had, you've just been talking about the effect on the public. But the reality is that the government started out using applied psychology to influence people within the government itself. And the key start point was DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, where there was a £34 million programme in order to use applied psychology on its staff to change the way they thought and behaved to follow government policy. And what was unleashed within a matter of months, a brutal cull of 11 million animals via the foot and mouth pandemic. Um, so we, we shouldn't just be looking at what the effect is on the public. We've got to look at what the effect of this political applied psychology is on people within government itself, both politicians and members of, of what was the civil service. Yes. Uh, now, if anybody is uh, unsure about that uh, cull of animals uh, under the foot and mouth uh, regime, the slaughtered on suspicion policy, then please do search for slaughtered on suspicion uh, on the UK column website. Uh, that uh, 
The documentary is back up uh, following our removal from YouTube and Vimeo. It's held on so, BitChute at least, isn't it? Uh, but, but it's it's on it's on the website again. Yeah, so so do search for it uh, and do watch it if you haven't seen it, because we've got to remember that that policy uh, was instigated by uh, the wonderful Neil Ferguson, who is, uh, as many will know, uh, absolutely behind lockdown in the UK. Well, look, we're over time, so we've got to end there. I'm going to say thank you very much to Brian. Thank you, uh, Alex, for brilliant to have you in the studio. We're not doing an extra today because sadly Alex has a train to catch, um, but uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Friday. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.